Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews could be called the book of better things. The word better, the word superior, is used about 15 times during uh, the writing of this book in the original language. And what we're going to see as we read some of these first few verses here in chapter 1 uh, is that the writer is, is telling us just how much better Jesus is, how far superior Jesus is than anything that came before. And everything that God instituted and implemented before was good, but Jesus is so much better. He's so far superior to everything that came before. So many have referred to the book of Hebrews as the book of better things. Um, we don't know who the writer is, the author is. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. I was preaching out of Hebrews chapter 11 last week, and so I just began to go back through the book of Hebrews, and I want to bring some lessons. I don't know if we'll preach through the whole book, but uh, verse by verse, but I definitely want to go through and bring some, some lessons from the book of Hebrews. I remember years ago when a preacher said, that the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And when I first heard that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. What do you mean the Bible wasn't written to us? Well, I mean, all we have to do is read it. There are specific individuals, churches, um, situations that were happening that the authors of the Bible and the New Testament uh, specifically that were written to a, a specific church dealing with a specific issue or several issues, and uh, it was written to those people in that day and time. So we have to understand that the Bible was not written to us, but it was definitely written for us. And it was recorded and it has been preserved for our learning so that we can look at this. When we look at the book of Hebrews, um, well, let, let me just give you a little synopsis. This is by Edward Fudge. Um, I'm, I've been looking at and reading his um, commentary. He wrote a commentary back in the early 70s, and it was called Our Man in Heaven. And it's a verse-by-verse -verse blow out of the King James Version, and I've been looking back through that. I got in the mail yesterday uh, his updated copy. I think it came out in 2009. Um, about the book of Hebrews, and this is sort of his synopsis. Uh, Edward Fudge died, I think, in 2017, so he's no longer with us, um, but just a wonderful, beautiful, beautiful man. He says, the book of Hebrews is the story of the Son of God who became a man to make men and women children of God, who is now man in heaven on our behalf, guaranteeing our present successes and guaranteeing our ultimate victory beside him. Steve read to us just a moment ago out of Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Did you realize that Jesus is our man in heaven right now? When Jesus came to the earth, he took on flesh. He became a man, just like, just like we are. He lived just as we live. 
but without sin. God was always looking for men and women to love him, to live for him, to follow his commands. We talked about it this morning. Uh, we're about to, God's about to give the law there in the book of Exodus, there in chapter 20. And God entered into a covenant with mankind. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people if you obey these commands. And the people readily said, yes, we can do that. We'll do that. But they didn't do it very well, very often. And so when Jesus came, he took on the likeness of man. He became man. He clothed himself. The creator of the universe became like that which he created. He clothed himself with flesh, and he lived just like we live. Jesus came to do that which we could not do. Jesus came to live the perfect life. Jesus obeyed God at every turn. Jesus did what you don't do and what I do not do. He became man. And I don't fully understand this, but apparently when Jesus left heaven and became a man, he has forever altered the way that he will spend eternity. You see, God is spirit. Jesus said that to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not a man. He's not a man as in a, a human being with flesh. But when Jesus took on flesh, listen to me, when he was uh, resurrected on the third day and he was glorified and ascended back to the Father, apparently... The Bible says that he is still a man in heaven. And that man is mediating for us because he knows what we've been through. He knows what we're going through. Why? Because he became man. He lived as we live. And so this is a good thing. Now, Jesus is glorified. He, he's been glorified. Um, in, in his body, but he is still a man in heaven and apparently will spend all of eternity that way. The Bible says that when we are resurrected, our bodies will be changed and we will be glorified, and then it says we will be like him. So Jesus is a glorified man in heaven, and that's good for you, and that's good for me because he's pleading our case. He's our mediator. He goes to the Father on our behalf. The story of the Son of God who became a man to make men and women, you and me, children of God, who is now man in heaven on our behalf, guaranteeing our present successes and guaranteeing our ultimate victory beside him. Now, the recipients of this letter were facing a crisis. We don't know its exact nature, but they desperately needed encouragement to continue trusting in Jesus and to keep hanging on. Probably uh, many of the recipients of this, of this writing were Jews. They were Hebrews. It doesn't mean that, that it was exclusively because probably there were some Gentiles that had come into the fold. But apparently, maybe there was some persecution. We don't know really what that was. But there was definitely a crisis that these early Christians were facing. 
Uh, it may have been persecution. It may have been persecution from their own family for having left the faith to now follow this man called Jesus. What are you doing? Why would you do that? You've left everything that you've ever known, and now you're following a man from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? They crucified him. They killed him like a common thief. Maybe that was the persecution. Maybe it was a, a crisis of commitment. Wouldn't it be beautiful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if when we came up out of the waters of baptism that our spiritual life and our spiritual growth looked something like this? Just kept going up and up and up and up until one day we go home to be with God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was, if that was the way our lives were? Every day we're just getting closer and closer to Jesus, looking more like him, acting more like him, saying things that he would say, treating people the way that he would treat them. And we just kept ascending and ascending and ascending. Has that been your experience in your walk with God? Isn't it kind of like this? Kind of like this. Sometimes the highs are really high, and then sometimes the valleys are so low. Isn't that what you've experienced? Maybe that's what these early Hebrew Christians were experiencing. Maybe they were having a crisis of faith. Where is this Jesus? He promised to return. We, we left everything that we knew, everything that was comfortable. The, the temple, the priest, the sacrifice, the music, everything that we knew. The bleeding of the sheep, the sacrifices, the blood, the smells, everything that was comfortable. We've left that to follow a man named Jesus. Where is he? Why are things so difficult? Does any of this resonate with you? And maybe there was this idea that maybe we'll just go back. We'll just go back to what we've known. We'll go back to the temple. We'll go back to the sacrifices that which is comfortable. Maybe our families will, will welcome us back in. But the author knew that whatever the crisis was, these early Christians needed a word of encouragement. They needed to know that they needed to keep hanging on, to hang in, hang in there. Let's just read the text this morning. This is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he, has, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In the past... In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many various ways in different times. All throughout history, God used certain people to, to communicate a message, something that he wanted conveyed to the people, to his people. 
We think about Abraham. We think about Moses as we're studying on Sunday mornings. All of the prophets that we read about in our in what we call the Old Testament. God spoke to these men, sometimes through women, to convey a message to his people. But it was always fragmentary. It was always just a, a portion. It was never in its entirety. And oftentimes the people heard it, they received it, and it was soon forgotten. They heard it, but it was soon forgotten. Oh, they changed their ways for a while, but then they went back to living the way that they'd always lived. And then they began to worship foreign gods and, and bring those things into their, to their hearts and their minds and their culture. God spoke in the past by his prophets, but it says, but now, now he's spoken to us through his son, through Jesus. What the writer is trying to do to these early Christians, he's saying, look, don't turn back. Don't give up. Stay true. Stay faithful to your commitment because Jesus is far better. Jesus is so much more superior than all of those prophets that you hold so dear. God spoke through those men for sure, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Ever since Jesus ascended back to the Father, we have been living in the last days. You know, oftentimes we, we see things, and, and I mean, you look around today at, at uh, the flooding that, there, that there's been in certain parts of our country and, and our world. I read a headline even this morning that said uh, the flooding was of biblical proportion. And so we read things like that, and we, and we say to ourselves, and many people say, the end time is near, but we're living in the last days. The end is near. Well, I'm going to tell you, we've been living in the last days for about 2,000 years, ever since Jesus ascended. And yes, the end is near. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. It's nearer than when you first came to faith. When is it going to be? I don't know. I don't know when it's going to be, but we are living in the last days, and we have been for a long time. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, I want to, I want to go through here because in these next two verses, there are some powerful things that the writer says, and it's all just chock full right here in just two verses. Seven great descriptive statements about the son's superiority. If they had any doubt that Jesus was superior to everything that they've ever known, he, he just chocks full these next two verses. Look at what he says. First of all, he's been appointed heir of all things. Jesus, the son of God, he has been given all authority and he has been appointed heir of everything. Jesus, the firstborn, the firstborn from among the dead, he, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he is a man, and he is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything it says he might have the supremacy. So he is greater than all, and he has been appointed heir of all things. Notice what it says, through whom he made the universe. 
Now, if there was any thought that Jesus was not greater, he says, through whom he made the universe. I want to call your attention to John chapter 1. We, we love this. We, we love the beginning of it. We quote it all the time. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look at verse 3. Verse 2 says, He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. We see in Colossians chapter 3. No, Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. We're talking about Jesus. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus. In the past, God spoke through prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his son. And his son has made everything. Through his son, he made the universe. Nothing that you see, nothing that has been made or created was not made or created except by the power of Jesus. It was made by him, and it was made for him. That's how precious the son is to the father. Anybody have a son like that, that you really love, that you would do anything for, have been over backwards, for time and time again, as, as imperfect as your love is, God has the perfect love for his son Jesus. He's appointed him heir of all things, and it was through Jesus that he made the universe. What, what does he say next? That the son is the radiance of God's glory. <clears throat> I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we've had a lot of rain of late. Has anybody realized that? that we've had quite a bit of rain. Man, the last couple of days have just been gorgeous. Lower humidity, everybody's out mowing their grass and stuff. I told Paula yesterday, I said, I've got to go back to work so I can get some rest. I, you know, when it's beautiful like that, you just try to cram in everything. You try to do as much as you can, you know, because it's so beautiful, you take advantage of that. I, I don't know if it was last week, maybe a week before last, but we had some rain, and I was driving home, and there was like a break in the clouds, you know, and, and all those rays uh, came, you know, shooting down out of the clouds. Even when I was a little boy, if I ever saw something like that, it just reminded me. It just made me think about God. You know, it's like that's God just shining down his power. And, and just that visual just reminded me all over again of just how, how powerful and how wonderful God is. You can't separate those rays from the sun because that's where... Those rays are emanating from, right? The same way with, with the Son and the Father. The Son is the radiance of all that God is, of all of God's glory. Why? Why is that true? Because the Son himself is God, right? The Son himself is God. And so he is the radiance of God's glory, Notice what it says, that he is the exact representation of his being. I just told you earlier that God is spirit. God is not a man. He's a spirit. 
But yet Jesus left heaven and became man. He, he took on flesh. So when it says that Jesus is the exact representation of his being, it doesn't mean that he looks like God physically, but that everything that God is, Jesus is. Um, the other day, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday, uh, Steve Eldridge came into my office and he had his brother with him, his older, his older brother. And immediately, it wasn't exact, but immediately I saw that familial uh, recognition that I, I, when he said, this is my older brother, I, I thought, you're not lying because I can see. I can see that there's something that, that binds you guys together. You guys have the same parents. Uh, you, you, there's a look about each, about each one of you. Sometimes you'll see a son and, you'll, and then you'll see his father and you'll say, wow, spitting image. Spitting image. When, when Haley was born, the nurses grabbed her up, and, and, and they're kind of rough with newborns. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. They just hold them like a football, you know. They just pick them up, and they took them over there, and they were scrubbing her, scrubbing her up and cleaning her up, and there were like two or three nurses there, and they all looked, and they said, oh, my, she looks just like her father. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no, I wanted her to look like her mother. She's going to have to contend with this all the time. But, but, but there's no doubt, she's my daughter, and I'm so proud of that. She's beautiful, right? Has a lot more hair than I have. <laughs> Jesus doesn't look like God physically because God's not a man. God the Father is not a man. You remember when when Thomas said, Lord, show us, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. And what did Jesus say? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Say, so what would God do in this situation? Well, let's see what Jesus did. How would God treat someone in, in this scenario? Well, how did Jesus treat someone in that scenario? Because anything that Jesus did is the exact representation of his father because he is in every way God, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things. You know, back in Greek mythology, uh, there is uh, the Greek god Atlas, and he was supposed to, you know, hold the world on his shoulders and everything depended on on Atlas keeping, you know, the world up. If, if Atlas shrugged, we'd be in trouble, right? It'd throw everything off. Jesus is not like that. Jesus sustains everything by the power of his word. And I got to thinking about that yesterday just for a, a moment. I thought, what if, what if Jesus, just for, just for a second, just for a moment, forgot about us? What if he forgot about us? Forgot that this world was spinning on its axis, circling around the sun, all the, the universe that he created. What, what if he just said, you know, I, I'm done with that and forgot? What would happen? <laughs> I shudder to even think. We'd all go flying off the planet. Gravity would cease to exist. Everything would just maybe start running into each other and explode. I don't know. Don't want to think too long about it. 
But Jesus sustains everything. Everything that happens in our world, in our universe, in our galaxy, is because Jesus is holding it all together. Not only did he create it, but he sustains it. It's all held together by Jesus. Why would you go back to something when you're following Jesus? Why would you turn back to to a, a shadow, a precursor of that which was to come when you now have the real thing? That's what he's writing to encourage them. It says the Son provided purification for sins. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, he had to become man. He had to take on flesh so that he could do what we didn't do, what we can't do. And when he accomplished that, when he kept the law, when he stayed faithful to the plan of redemption, a plan that he himself was a part of creating before the creation of the earth, before the foundations were ever laid, the Word of God, who was with God in the beginning, was a part of this scheme of redemption of how mankind would be brought back into a relationship with God. He provided that purification by the shedding of his blood, by taking on flesh. You see, that, that makes the sacrifice even greater to me as, as horrific as it was, the beating, the shame being spat upon, a crown of thorns, nails in his hands and feet, as, as unbelievable as that sacrifice was, the thought that Jesus He loved us so much that he will forever be a man in eternity. He not only sacrificed himself on the cross, he's given up what he was for all eternity. A being, spirit, and he is now a man and will be throughout all eternity. That just ratchets it up for me. It, it, it just makes the sacrifice even more mind-blowing than it ever was. And once he provided purification for sins, the writer says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He wouldn't even use the name God for fear of, of somehow not using it properly. So the writer says he uses the word majesty. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What does that convey to you when you think about Jesus? He's, he's been resurrected. He's ascended back to the Father. And now he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. At least two things come to my mind. First of all, it says that he's reigning. He is reigning and ruling over the universe. The Bible says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father. 
And just as an aside, we don't have time to go into this, John, but as an aside, if we're in Christ, guess what? We have been seated with him. That's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We have been seated with him. Do you feel like you're ruling the universe right now? No, I don't feel like I am either. I have a hard time just getting a hold of my own scene at home, you know. But ruling the universe? Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning. He is king of kings, ruling not just this earth. He's ruling the cosmos, the universe, the galaxies. So that's, that's number one. But secondly, it says to me, when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, when he, just the fact that he sat down means that it's finished. The work of redemption is finished. He did everything. He did everything that he needed to do. There's nothing left for Jesus Christ to do as it pertains to our salvation. Everything we need, 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He's given us everything. There's nothing lacking. So he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven means he's ruling, he's reigning, and guess what? It is finished. Isn't that what he said on the cross? It's finished. There's nothing else. Father, I have come to do your will. I have kept your law. I've never strayed. And Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Everything that is needed, he's done. He's fulfilled it. Having provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I thought maybe we'd get into some angel stuff this morning, but I think we're just going to stop right there. Everything is about Jesus. From the beginning of this book to the end, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. There's a, there's a song that, that we used to sing um, it's not an old hymn. It's actually a, a fairly new song. But it was written, uh, I think, by a guy named Matt Redman. And he started t talking about, as a worship leader, things started to get bigger and bigger and more and more grandiose. And he said, when the music fades and all is swept away and I simply come, wanting just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song because a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within to the way things appear. You're looking deep into my heart. And then he says this, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it because it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Don't turn back. 
Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to what you've always known. Jesus is so much better. He's so much superior to anything that's happened in the past. Stay with it. Hang in there. You've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back.